Hey everybody, my name is Daryl. I'm an alcoholic. My wife's here, and she would absolutely uh, disagree with that comment about being low maintenance. So, it's a pleasure to be with you here today. Uh, I just want to thank the committee. You know, anytime you're asked to do anything on behalf of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a privilege. Um, so my sobriety date, January 4th, 2014. Uh, I have a sponsor. Thank you. I have a sponsor. He has a sponsor. Uh, I know who his sponsor was and who his sponsor was. Not old enough to have met them, uh, but I know who they are. Uh, so what I'd like to do this morning is, um, is tell you what I was like, what happened to me, and what I'm like today. And uh, so let me start um, with where I grew up. Uh, from Indianapolis, Indiana. Well, my home group. If they hear this tape, they're going to ask me why I didn't mention them. Um, it's the Dignitary Sympathies Group on Tuesday nights in Indianapolis. Um, when I went there, they said, we can guarantee you nobody here with any dignity. Uh, there's, a, there's a home group member here. Uh, he was sitting down here to make sure I wore a tie. Um, I'm convinced of that. Uh, Tuesday nights, 7 p.m. Please look us up and you're welcome. So I grew up about an hour north of Indianapolis in a small farm town, Peru, Indiana. Actually, I should mention this. UK fans, anybody here heard of Kyle Macy? Kyle Macy? All right, so I, Kyle's a buddy, so I'm just trying to get him good with you right now. Um, and I played for his dad in, in high school, and I used to work out with Kyle. So uh, he lost all his hair. Have you noticed that? His hair didn't move, you know, for years, and now he's lost it all. I hope Kyle doesn't hear it. So... So I, uh, my dad was a 20-year military guy. I uh, did a couple tours in Vietnam. I uh, met my mother in this farm town. And uh, 13,000 people, an amazing place to, to grow up as I look back on it. My wife and I were born in the same hospital. Um, it's amazing. She's only 38, but we've known each other for 46 years. Um, and that's been a real blessing for me. For me. So. Life was pretty normal for me um, until about seven. <laughs> and uh, things began to happen that were unusual in my house. Um, my mother was a manic depressive alcoholic, and she was institutionalized a handful of times, never on her own. Um, the family always had to be the ones to go and and you know, testify that she was unfit or there was some type of, uh, of turbulence or abuse. Um, so I remember you know, early, uh, and, and I grew up in a church home. So there was this, you know, I had a grandfather and uncle that were pastors, so we were active in a church, and yet there was all this chaos that was going on. And, and I, I remember the first time that I got a hold of enough alcohol, and I didn't understand what alcoholism was. I knew my mother had a drinking problem. And I knew what was going on wasn't normal. But the first time that I got a hold of enough alcohol, um, I was out in the neighborhood with a buddy. And, uh, and I remember not feeling well um, at the end of the night. But up until that point, I remember feeling like life had, had, uh, had changed. You know, I, you hear people talk about it being spiritual. Um, you know, I was a good athlete and I was popular, but I never felt part of. And I always felt like people were judging me because of what was going on with my family. 
So at a certain point, my mother had begun to take some of the escapades that used to happen in our house to the public. So there was cars running into to cars at baseball games and baseball bats going through storefront windows and uh, arrests and things like that. So I always felt like when people were looking at me, they were talking about me. And the only thing that relieved any of that, you got a medical emergency? Is there anybody here with any medical expertise? I think they got it taken it's under control. Um, I always felt like people were looking at me and talking about me, so I never felt like it was one of. I always felt like I was uh, separated from people. Um, until, the, until I took the first drink. And I remember going home that night, and we had gotten into his, his parents' cabinets, and it, it slow gin, I think, is what it was. Um, right, which is why I got sick. That's pretty impressive. Somebody last night said they, their last drink was peppermint schnapps, the fifth. I'm not gonna say who it was, um, but come on, right? This is the land of bourbon down here. If you guys wanna talk to Paul after the meeting, and, get his mind right about peppermint schnapps. But, uh, so we go home, and he said, hey, you know, we, let's go ahead. We need to go to bed because we've got plans tomorrow. And I said, hey, you know, your, your parents have any more alcohol? And he said, no, we really got to go to bed. We, you, know, we, you know, my parents have plans tomorrow. Um, we were going to go out on a boat or something like that out at the, the reservoir. So he goes to bed, and I proceed to start rifling through all the cabinets see what I can find, because I was, I mean, this was, uh, I was ready to do it again. And that's kind of the way it went from there. Um, you know, I was, a, as I said, a decent athlete. I ended up uh, walking on at Purdue University. Uh, should have, because Kentucky, or IU wasn't interested, um, should have gone somewhere and played. But as I look back, this was one of those deals, and, you know, Wilson's story, when he talks about picturing himself being the head of vast enterprises. I'm like, that's, that's, I wanted to be the head of whatever was going on. And at that time in Indiana, there was one tournament. So that's what, like a movie like Hoosiers could be created. So if you weren't playing at IU or Purdue or something like that, then you really hadn't achieved anything. And, you know, my entire life, as I look back on it now, I think about uh, being a three-inning ball player. You know, that whatever I thought I needed to do to get to the head of whatever I was involved in at the moment, I was going to hustle out of the gate. And I was going to give you three good innings, but I couldn't finish anything. Couldn't finish anything. So I drank, and, uh, and then I had outside issues as well. I, and um, so my third year at Purdue, the second year, the coach at that time was Katie. said, you're not making a big, uh, big difference in the program. And um, so that ended, and I wasn't going to class. Uh, so I ended up uh, getting kicked out of school for some other things. I had to go see the dean. Um, and I end up uh, moving to South Carolina. And all through high school and all through college, it was one of those deals that, you know, I, I had to be the head of the party. I had to throw the party. And it came first before all other things. Now, up until that time, my parents had gotten a divorce when I was 13. And there had been this situation that had developed for me because of this self-pity that I had, that I developed this scenario in life where I was either the victim like, if you knew what happened to me, you would drink like I drank, um, or I was the assassin. 
where if you interfered or you hurt or you threatened me, right, things that they talk about in the book, um, there was going to be a problem. I had no ability to have any balance. One of those bedevilments, you know, you're able to have any balance in life and, you know, make a living, and I, I wasn't able to do that. So I had cut my mother off and said, you know, we're not going to talk. Um, I moved down to South Carolina, my first marriage, uh, shortly. I got married in Indiana, moved to South Carolina the next day to get away from my family. And the other thing that I recalled, you know, up until that point in my life, all I could think about was getting out of that small little farm town that I now love, uh, because I thought that if I got out of that place, I would not be like my family. And I thought, you know, you know, I had a brother that had gone to prison. He was alcoholic. You know, there was some uh, allegations of some harm he had done to some children. And I just thought, you know, everywhere I go, I feel like they're talking about me and my white trash family. So what I need to do is find a way to get out. So I thought, okay, I didn't finish school, but I'm going to go travel the world. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be well-read. And anywhere I go, I'm going to be able to put on this new life. And I'm not going to have to, nobody's going to know about where I've come from or, or who my family is. So there were times where I cut my mother off. Uh, and that's important later in my, later in my story. So, Things don't get better. I, you know, the, the first job I have is a 13 years, and uh, I'm traveling three weeks out of the month, and three to four weeks out of the month on an airplane, so 150, 200,000 air miles a year. When you fly that off and you get to sit up front, and the first thing they ask you is, what would you like to drink? So every day that I was on an airplane, and this was before 9-11, so I could be on airplanes every other day, my day was starting on an aircraft like that. I ensured that any place I was staying, because I lived on the road, you know, there was a mini bar, and I traveled so often that I became friends with uh, with people in a lot of different parts of the country. Um, you know, it's I used to. It was <laughs> I think about some of the entertaining. So I ran the uh, North American Sales and Marketing for this organization, and I would go to dinner, and I'd say I'd make arrangements for dinner. We're going to do business over dinner, so we're going to a nice place, and I'd get a table as far away from the bar as I could. And I'd go by the bartender at the beginning of the night, and I'd say, here's some money. If you see me walking over here, and, you know, if I don't do this, then, you know, go ahead and the shot that you have ready for me, I'll, I'll take it. So we'd be drinking at dinner, and then I'm having to cruise to the bathroom to keep whatever's going. And we could be drinking nice wine at dinner. It didn't matter, right, because I'm drinking for effect. And I continue to drink. At the end of the night, whenever people are going back to their rooms, um, that's whenever I began to look for the most sordid places I could. And there was something about going into the seediest, raunchiest, um, excuse me, bar where I knew that all I were worried about there was drinking, and I'd light up. And I knew everybody. My people. I saw a couple of you there. Everybody um, <laughs> like a Christmas tree. Right? So, 13 years, and I tear that that job down, um, you know, my wife, first wife gets pregnant about six years into our marriage and uh, I have a daughter that arrives. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I thought growing up, I went through so much garbage as a kid that I thought I'm never going to get a divorce. No matter what, I'm not going to put my children through something like that. They don't have any choice in the matter, right? So a few years after that, uh, four four and a half of a son is born. And I remember there was a day um, where my daughter, who's five, and I was home, you know, I'd come home for the weekends and just jet back out. 
And she said, Daddy, don't we make you happy anymore? And I said, I don't, what do you mean, honey? He said, you don't smile. You know, you don't laugh. You don't sing anymore around mom or me. And so here's the, here's the child I'm trying to protect, picking up on the brokenness of what's going on in my life, right? So um, I get a divorce. I move back to Indiana. My, my, my drinking escalates. So I go 13 years. I'm in a company for seven years, five years, two years. Then I can't get up, so I thought I might as well you know, start my own company. <laughs> right, Kent? Um, and so nobody's going to holler at me but me and, and, and my wife. So the drinking escalates. Um, and, you know, throughout all that time, I had people saying, you know, you really ought to take a look at what's going on. And, but, but I was convinced that if, you know, it was funny. I didn't have anything, um, nothing emotionally sound in my life going on. So where I put my value and where I thought, right, and misdiagnosed my problem for years, I thought if I can achieve certain success, you know, if I can have a certain title, if I know certain people, um, then I'll be happy. And so that happens, not happy, but I'm convinced I can't be alcoholic if that stuff's going on. I just, you know, what I have to do is just control what I'm doing, right, this old willpower piece. So fast forward that because I want to get to the better part of my story. The last time I'm arrested... The last time I'm arrested. I'm on a three-day run, and I run a red light, and I don't realize it. I've blacked out, and I almost T-boned a police officer. And he whips it around, cuts the lights on, and I kind of wake up to the sound of the sirens and the flashing lights, and I think, this is a problem. Um, because there's outside issues in the car, there's a whiskey bottle open, you know, I'm on the, you know, this was, I played, I played in a band for years, so I played a New Year's Eve show, this was three days later, and I don't remember a couple of those days. But I thought, you know, I, this isn't the first time this has happened, I'm going to go to jail, and I don't know if you noticed or not, but I use hair products. <laughs> I don't do gel very well. So, so I thought, you know, he's, you know, he, he, the the the, uh, the intercom comes on. It's a pull over. So I start to pull over. Then I look at the mess in the car. I'm like, I can't pull over. And I'm close enough to my house that I thought I'm just going to wait. I'm going to go home, and then I'm going to say I'm home. So. He, I don't know that, I've, that I'm speeding. I don't know that I've ran a red light. I don't know that I've almost hit him. So now he thinks I'm fleeing. Pull over. I'm not going to do it close enough. So I pull up to my house. By the time I pull up to my house, he's got some more folks that he's called to help. And I look up, and our, our home sits on a small hill. And my teenage children are standing in the window. Now, that morning, had you strapped me to a lie detector test and asked me what I would do for my family, I would have said anything, including die for them, and I would have passed. 
So I think I'd better get out and tell, tell them that those are my kids and I'm home. That was met with an extreme amount of enthusiasm. So I'm taken down as I look up at my children. My daughter turns and I, and I can see her back and her shoulders are beginning to move and she's beginning to cry. And I look at the, the face on my, my teenage son and I think I've seen every face possible for my teenage son. This is a new one. And I get this voice, and you know, in in all the uh, you know the madness and, and the influence and, and the condition I was in, I distinctly remember hearing, "You do anything, including die for them, but you can't stop for them." And I've later learned that I can't stay stopped for them, right? So I go to jail. Uh, you know, as I'm released, I'm beginning to think, how am I going to get out of this? Because what I do is I figure out how I'm going to get out of something. I start to hustle. And uh, I had a buddy who said, well, you are going to jail for a while, you know, this many offenses. You're going to have to uh, to get a hold of an attorney and see what he can do for you. So I call an attorney, and I tell him what's going on. He says, oh, i tell you what you need to do is you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous because they're going to send you there. And if you go now, then the judge is going to look favorably on that. And I wanted the judge to look favorably on that, right? So I get to you guys, and um, I had been active in my church, and, and I had a relationship, I would say, as far as my understanding with God. And, um, you know, so I, I had tried before through church programs to, to get clean, stay sober, couldn't do it. So I come in, and I hear something when I first get here that I that I understand the spirit of, but I realize it's nowhere in our literature, and somebody says, hey, go to 90 and 90. Well, when somebody says, Daryl, what is your problem? My problem's more. So I thought, if you think I should go to 90 and 90, I'll go to 120 and 90. And that's what I do. So what happens in that first 120 days is I didn't realize that alcohol was not my problem most of my life, that it was my solution. And the solution is no longer involved, but my family's thrilled that I'm not drunk. And so I'm getting encouragement from my wife and my kids. You're doing great. And I'm also a spiritual thief. And I want, I care so much about what you think. And I want to achieve at whatever I do. But I come to the rooms. You know, if Paul says something that's profound or wise, I steal it. I wait till Paul's not around and then I repeat it. So now all of you think, man, I see you all the time. You're saying things that sound like you know what's up and you got the program rolling. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't drink no matter what. And I'm thinking, really? Is that the best that you guys have? Because I'm the guy that cannot not drink no matter what. And then other people started saying, hey, you know, uh, fake it till you make it. I go, got the wrong guy again. All I've ever done is faked it. Think, think, think. I'm behind enemy lines, people. There's a problem there. And so I started to get really concerned, and I convinced myself that this was not going to work for me. And, you know, I had gotten a spot. Well, what I did initially, you know, when my first meeting, I said, my, you know, I hear people saying they're alcohol. I said, my name's Daryl, and I'm in trouble. 
And I cry and give commercials, so I'm crying because I'm in pain. But I said, who's in charge? <laughs> People just shake their head at me. I said, no, I'm serious. Who's your leader? <laughs> and the guy said, tonight, the guy making coffee. I thought, well, uh, everybody's a comedian around here. You guys are all happy. So I, I get a sponsor, but I decide as I look at the board, you know, what it is that I'm going to do and not going to do. You know, I had no idea that the steps were designed for relief. You know, I thought they were, you know, as I looked at them, that's designed for pain. You know, I'm not writing, I'm not, I might write some stuff. I'm not going to be honest in a fifth step. And I thought it meant at that time of saying, I'm sorry. You know, come to find out that's not it at all. Um, and I just thought, okay. So I, I, I mess around and I continue to get worse. And during active alcoholism, I never ever would have thought about suicide. And I began to contemplate suicide in a serious way. And I confess that to my wife. Um, you know, and so I, I, I'm not sure what to do, and I, <laughs> it's funny, so I Googled. Um, can you believe that? Uh, but it's a miracle. I, I Googled, because I'd heard people talking about the book, you know, and, and I had read the book, but the book just seemed like a historic account in the beginning, and, and I really didn't understand, you know, I, there's no way for me to unpack the book by myself. So I read excuse me, read the book, and I hear people talking about their lives getting better and blaming it on God. And I'm like, well, I know God. You know, I, I don't, that's, I got that one covered. Nothing happens. So I go online, and I just Google big book study or big book workshop. And, you know, the Joe and Charlie stuff comes up, but there's also some stuff that came up by Mark Houston and Joe Hawk. And there were three eight- to ten-hour sessions by these guys. And I start listening to those, and something begins to happen for me. Uh, for whatever reason, I begin to hear them. I know nobody was trying to hurt me in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But they're saying some things that I hadn't heard before. Right? And they start, as they're talking, they're talking about their sponsorship lineage, and they'll say, you know, my, our sponsor, Don P., and his sponsor, Gary B., and his sponsor, Paul Martin, and his sponsor, Tom Peters, and Paul Stanley, and his sponsor, Dr. Bob, and Bill, and... Like wow, that's amazing. Um, there's the leaders, um, and I guess it was the third the third series that I listened to, and they're saying the names, and they say Don P and his sponsor Gary B from Indianapolis. And I went, one of these guys is here. So. I begin to, to call some folks and say, does anybody have any idea where, where I can find this gentleman? And, uh, you know, he worked at Intergroup and things, but on my side of town, people didn't know how to get a hold of him. So I, uh, it's a Sunday night, I pray a real simple prayer. I'm like, Father, this is the man that I'm supposed to connect with because I'm in serious trouble. You know, please let me find him. That Wednesday, I go to a meeting uh, that, I, that I usually don't go to, and a lady shows up who you, who's never been to that meeting before carrying his 50th sobriety birthday flyers. And I'm like, you know how I can catch him. So I connect with him, and I'm, I'm concerned about rejection, so the first thing we do is I just worship him over breakfast. Um, <laughs> but I'm afraid to say, hey, will you help me? 
and he's not going to say, I'd be happy to help you. So a couple more weeks go by, and I'm in trouble, and my wife said, please call. Please call that man. So I, I called, and uh, he said, yes, I've been waiting for you to call. So I normally don't do this like this. And we get together, and he says, look, I'm a one-trick pony. The only thing that I know how to do is to go through this book line by line, and each time it asks us to do something, we do it. And if you'd be willing to do that, unless you got a better solution, then I'd be happy to take you through that process. And I'm thinking, well, these guys sound pretty happy on these tapes, man. Um, and I, for one, am not. Uh, so I said, I'd be, I'd be willing to do that. So the first thing we do is he pulls out a piece of paper and he draws this triangle in this circle. He says, let's talk about your program. And he says, okay, this is a, you know, it tells me a little about the origin and the history and, you know, where Bill introduced this to, you know, 1955. And I love the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And and he says, okay, unity, recovery, service. And then this circle represents wholeness. Let's talk about what you think that is because you have a three-part deal going on. And then he qualifies me. He says, you know, we got to make sure that you understand that your body is as sick as your mind. When you drink, what happens? Can you control how much you drink? And the first thing I thought is, who would want to control how much they drink? (laughs) Well, no. He said, okay, then physically, if you begin and you can't control the amount you drink, you may be alcoholic. And then he says, well, so, you know, you've been doing this thing, trying on and off for a while. What's the craziest thing you've ever done? Guys, I've traveled the world a handful of times. I have crazy. So I'm going, (laughs) he wants to hear about crazy. I said, well, this one time, and he said, hold it, Daryl. Whenever we sat down, you you, you told me you were in a condition where you wanted to kill yourself. And that you couldn't stay stopped for your kids. Is it possible that the craziest thing you do is you pick up a drink when you're stone cold sober? I hadn't thought about that. He said, okay, Unity, what do you think that is? I said, I don't know. Meetings? Uh, yeah, fellowship. That's where you find unity. He said, so how are you doing with that? Well, I'll have you know that I've been... Initially, when I got here, I went to 120 meetings in 90 days. And, you know, I go to a meeting or two every day. He said, and you want to kill yourself. <laughs> is it possible that meetings don't treat alcoholism? And is it also possible maybe that if you don't go, you might have a drink? Okay. He says, okay, let's say. So this is one third. He's telling me about this three part thing, and we're going to have to do equal. These are equal distant legs. So he goes, let's talk about where we're at here. So recovery. What's going on there? I said, well, I've been to 120 meetings. And it takes me to page 59. It says, well, here's a suggested program of recovery, the 12 steps. What's going on with the steps? Have you worked the steps? He knew the answer. I said, no, but I'm sponsoring people. (laughs) And he quickly said, stop. (laughs) Do not do that. (laughs) I have tattoos. I got tattoo guys coming up to me. Uh, So he said, so let's say that uh, 
you're not, he goes, I hate to break it to you, but you're not in recovery. I thought I was in recovery when I said I was in recovery. He says, you're not in recovery. You might be hanging out with people in recovery. I don't know where you're going. He says, so let's come back to that. What about service? I said, well, I was telling you I'm sponsoring people. <laughs> you know, and I pick up chairs and I'll chair a meeting. And he says, you know, it's so important. You know, acts of service are important. But this is about carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, so what I promise you is you will go through this book and you do what I suggest. That you're going to have a promise that that, that the 12-step articulates for us. That you're going to have this awakened spirit. That you're going to be able to carry a message into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then you're going to be able to be of service in all areas of your life. In the rooms. In your marriage. With your children, at your job. He says, you'll be whole. And that sounded so attractive to me. So we began that process. And one of the things um, in the, you know, and so I, it was amazing, you know, when I, when I finally got into inventory. You know, one of the things, and, and so I'm going to share this just because this was a hang up for me, right? Um, well, let me go back. I need to talk to you about lack of power before I talk to you about this part. So we were talking about the steps, and, and, he, you know, and I saw the third step, and I said, I just want you to know I'm cool with God. <laughs> you know, I got that. We don't have to spend a lot of time on that. And uh, I said, I have faith and belief in God. He says, well, I'm not here to convince you that there's God. But I want you first to understand that you're not him. And I also want you to understand that it's not faith and belief that's a concern for me. It's, it's, some, it's getting you to the power of God. And then he said, lack of power is our dilemma. And honest to God, the thing I started thinking was, oh boy, you know, I'm about to learn the other refrigerator magnet sayings and drink the Kool-Aid. And he said, well, let me explain this to you. So why don't you follow me? And uh, so... We have this, uh, this deal. He's going, let's just follow me to the bathroom. Take some deep breaths and count them off. One. Two. Three. So we get there. I get to about 11. You said, okay. So you've had 11 breaths. So you believe that there's something here that you need air, oxygen, you believe that when you do that, you get that. You get that breath, right? And you have faith that when you, that you get some. Yeah. Great. Get on your knees and I'm going to stick your, hair, your head under the toilet water. And I want to see how long your faith and your belief that there's air at the surface matters. He says, I'm not talking to you about your faith and your belief. You've told me that you've had this relationship with God for years. What you lack is the power of God in your life. You lack conscious contact with God, which is why you're miserable, which is why you can't set a drink down, and which is why you want to kill yourself. So as we go through this process, I remember getting to the fourth step, and uh, I used to hear in the rooms, and, and just stay with me on this. I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm just trying to share what's in this book because it matters. Is 
you know, I, I thought, I'm going to look at my part, and I'm going to look at your part. I'm going to see what my part is. Well, this is how I roll. That if I have a part, that means that there's more than one thing happening here. Parts. And if I'm looking at my part and you don't respond the way that I think you should, there's going to be a problem. Right? And really, that's another way of playing God. And he says, no, what the book says is set aside what the other person's done completely. We're going to look at my mistake, where I'm to blame. You know, where I've been dishonest, resentful, selfish, and afraid. Now, if any of you have ever been in an abusive situation, and you wonder, what the heck do I have to do with that? How can I possibly have anything any mistake or, or to be blamed if I've been abused emotionally, physically, sexually. Well, we're not to be blamed for the act. The mistake is not the, the our mistake is not the act that occurred. Our mistake is that we carry that and it becomes the lens that we look through life and it becomes the filter that affects the way that I speak the way that I show up, the way that I process. Now, if I'm looking at parts, how can I possibly ever get free from that? I can't experience God's grace if I'm sitting in judgment. So that was important for me to learn in my inventory. And then we get to uh, this process of the sixth and seventh step, and I remember going, well, I've been to a lot of Tony Robbins seminars, and I'm a self-help guy. i got a whole library full. I'm going to work on some of these things. And, the, you know, <laughs> the thing about this, you know, I hear that. I mean, guys, the first 104 pages of the book in the doctor's opinion are the specific instructions for the steps. The first 43 pages in the doctor's opinion, step one. They were really clear on what they wanted to put on which pages. There's a reason why there's two paragraphs for six and seven. If I had the power to fix the things that disconnected me from God and caused harm, wouldn't I have already dealt with them? So I think of it like these ping pong balls, right? Where I'm going, I've got to work on my patience. I'm being patient today. When I get to the stop sign, you know, and I'm behind somebody at the counter and they're dumping their purse out, I'm going to work on patience. Oh, and here comes lust. Oh, hold it. I'm going to work on lust. lust you know, and then here comes envy. And I'm constantly doing this deal, right? I mean, the, the hard work of six is getting to this place where I'm clear in step five that I don't want this to continue to be the way that I roll. I'm entirely willing, I'm ready for God to bring something new in my life. And then I ask him to. Right? So I remember when I get to my amends, my mother passed away in 2001. And there had been years where we hadn't spoken to one another. And uh, intentionally, I was in active alcoholism. I'm like, you know, I want you showing up for the kids' things. I don't want you at my, you know, at this wedding. I don't want you at this baptism, you know. And I moved away to ensure that that wouldn't happen. And and there's another, you know, in our book it says if you can't see somebody, write them an honest letter. I was okay. So I was encouraged to write my mother a letter. And so I'm going through this letter that, you know, I regret the harm that I caused in the following way, and I couldn't, 
wasn't the sun that I should have been. And but I'm I'm still this one's really deeply rooted, and there's still some parts in there for me. You know, you didn't show up. You hurt me. You embarrassed me. So I write this letter, and Tracy, my wife, and I go to the town we grew up in. We're not far from where we're going to be buried, and I read this letter. And by this time, recovery had changed my life. I'm on fire. There's a transformation happening in my life, and the power of God, I can see it everywhere, which is what the transformation's about, right? I'm looking through a different lens. Chamberlain talked about a new set of glasses. Talked about sponsorship lineage, right? So... I read this letter and nothing happens. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking about this Kool-Aid again. Yeah. Got me. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. And uh, I get angry. And my wife says, honey, why don't you just go get quiet and pray about it? I got a confession to make. What went through my mind is another flipping person tell me to go pray about something? <laughs> Okay, I'm here. So I go off, and uh, I'm wrestling with God the first few minutes, you know. I'm carrying this around for, you know, four-plus decades. Where do we go from here? You know? And I'm praying, I'm praying, then all of a sudden I drift off, and I start thinking about a club that I got sober at in in, uh, the north side of Indianapolis, no, I've been taught when a newcomer comes through the door, don't let him get far. You know, go say, hey, welcome. You know, this is where beggars tell other beggars where there's bread. There's life in here. Doesn't matter what you've done, what you've been through. Welcome. Come in here. And I'm thinking about all these guys I'm welcoming. And then I all of a sudden think, hold on for a second. And I come here, I'm supposed to write this letter to my mother. You know, I get nothing going on there. I pray for a few minutes, get distracted, and I start thinking about me again, what I do. And now I'm real twisted. And all of a sudden, and I don't know if my eyes were open or closed, all of a sudden I got a vision of my mother as a young woman, beautiful, standing in the doorway of that club. Because all I ever wanted to do was not be like her. same voice I heard face down on my lawn as I looked up at my children. Are you going to welcome her in here? And for the first time in my life, I began to experience compassion. Because she didn't have you. She didn't talk about God. And I began to think about all the times that I saw her going crazy in a different way. But how, how difficult that must have been, trying to live through the illness of the mental health issues and the alcoholism and addiction under her own power, when her kids were saying, don't come, we don't want you here. So I left that day with a... Uh, with a different experience, a different perspective. Through prayer and meditation, I've discovered a lot of beautiful things my mother has done for me. My wife reminds me 
when we were kids the things that my mother did before she got really sick. So uh, I'm home. Uh, this would have been two or three years ago. And there's a manila folder that my sister had sent me, my oldest sister. I have two sisters. And there's pictures, childhood pictures and stuff. And I'm flipping through. And about halfway through, I get distracted. And uh, I set them down. And um, I don't go back and pick them up. They got filed. And then I'm renovating a home office about a year after that. And I'm going through uh, the envelope. And I come across the picture that I have never seen before. My mother wearing the very same thing that she had on in the doorway. Beautiful. I hear God saying, you know, I'm so interested in the details of your life. I've been here all along. You know what I'm most grateful for today? I'm grateful for my sobriety, but I'm grateful for the transformation that the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous when work is laid out in this book can offer a guy like me. I want to close with something. I got to, Peter's not here, but I got to tell, uh, got to say this, man. You know, I'm here today with a couple people, and Kent and, and Peter and Polly wasn't able to make it. That have been my AA heroes. These are the guys that I listen to. And it's funny, man. There's times I, I run a recovery house now. We've got 150 guys in a couple places. My, my friend Mike is in Indianapolis, also runs a, a recovery house. It's so good to see him here. Um, but there's times where I hear Kent saying, my grandmammy always said that everything goes better with prayer. And then I hear Peter saying, hey, man, you got to chop wood and carry water. And I know these guys uh, are just like me. But, you know, the first tradition... Let me talk about this real quick, and then I'll close with this thing. I got another sponsee brother passed away of cancer, a guy by the name of Rick Carter. And we were talking about the, uh, the first tradition. And he says, okay, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery, mine, yours, 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 all of ours, depends on AA unity. He says, Darrell, what do you think unity means? I don't know, Rick, that we agree on some fundamental things? He said, eh, maybe. You know, what's the likelihood of a bunch of alcoholics agreeing on anything? <laughs> he says, what if it means to be harmonious? To be harmonious. That everything we do contributes to the harmony, or not, of Alcoholics Anonymous. So even when you're right, and you want to beat somebody over the head with the very grace that saved your life because you got magic from this thing, that's not contributing to the harmony of Alcoholics Anonymous. So as I look around and I think of the 68th Kentucky Convention and so many more people here that have more time than me, my family, on behalf of my family, thank you for being harmonious so that there was a room for me to come to. So I think this is where Bill may have had an awakening, and this is a... I love this part of the book. 
so this is where he has his white light experience, which we understand we'd all, all have to have that. But Silver says to him, something has happened to you I don't understand, but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. And that says the good doctor now sees many men who have such experiences. He knows how real they are. And then Bill has this thought. I hadn't seen anybody yet. <clears throat> While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. So my prayer is perhaps we can continue to help some of them. My name is Daryl. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Thank you very much.